So the movie's called Batman. So let's talk about Michael Keaton as Batman. How does his chin fill out the uh, outfit? <laughs> There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com Hello, you're listening to The Sequel Cast, a podcast talking about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. This is your host, Uncle Milkshake. With me is Thrasher. Howdy, fellas. And uh, Jersey Jason. Hey. We have a special guest this episode. We have Tyler. He's a co-host of Battleship Pretension. That is a podcast that is a, uh, a movie podcast that they typically have comedians on as guests. And they don't follow the latest movies necessarily, but they do interesting topics like... Bill Murray's career, or talk to people such as Maurice LaMarche. It's a wide range of things they do in Battleship Pretension. And uh, Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, uh, you look at the name Battleship Pretension, and I naturally think of a film, Battleship Potemkin, an old yeah. uh, Russian silent film. It's weird about a Battlefield Earth. Or Das Boot. I don't know how to respond to any of that, <laughs> except, the, except the first thing. Um, yeah, uh, we... <laughs> Okay, so when we were first coming, I, I wish I could take credit for the name. It was actually my co-host who came up with it, um, and uh, a lot of people tried to talk us out of it. And for, yes, those that don't know, it is a, a play on the term uh, Battleship Potemkin, uh, because our theory is that if you get the joke, you'll like the show, um, which uh, has turned out to not be the case all the time, by the way. Um, but anyway, so uh, so yeah, David came up with it, and and uh, and I laughed and thought it was pretty solid. Um, my fir- I I laughed first out of uh, incredulity, where I was just like, "Oh, that's funny." We could never call it that, of course, but that's very funny. Uh, and a lot of our friends tried to tried to talk us out of it, um, but uh, we had to go with what we liked, and so we went with that. And uh, since then, we've actually gotten a lot of people saying uh, that, uh, "Hey, you know, I got to give that show a try just on the title alone." So I think it has, it has served us uh, it has served us very well. Uh, it was between that and uh, uh, the f- the film cabinet, which uh, which was going to <laughs> we liked that because it implied it's a cabinet where we st- where you store films. But we are also uh, Dr. you know Caligari. that also as well as uh, you know we're we're writing movie law because we are the what film cabinet. The, uh, <laughs> what about the celluloid closet? Uh, uh-huh. Isn't there a I show believe- with that name? No, there's it's a, a documentary. Oh. It's a documentary about movies. Yeah, I think it's a book written by, is it Gore Vidal? Uh, then I, and I don't recall if the documentary is related to it. But uh, yeah, that one, uh, from what I understand, the, there's a, uh, a strong uh, association with, with that book and, and documentary that uh, I feel like would give people the wrong impression about our show. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so so yeah, that's that's where the title came came from, and uh, we're very we're very pleased with it. We do get compliments on it uh, frequently, but it wasn't my idea, unfortunately. Now you've had comedians on your show a lot, and a lot of uh, movie podcasts, the sequel cast, which you're listening to now included, have mm-hmm. a comedic bent. What is it about movies that make people want to you know poke fun at them when they're talking about it, or do like mystery science theater style commentaries at movies? What's f- so funny about film? Well, the thing, 
in my experience, uh, we started having comedians on simply because they were the most approachable uh, here in Los Angeles. Um, a comedian, the very nature of what they do uh, involves engaging with an audience. And so um, they were very, they weren't very emotionally cut off as some actors have been when we've approached them. And uh, they're, they're very willing to do it. And especially when we tell them what the show is about, that it's less interviewee and more just getting their take on the, a specific topic or whatever the case may be. And that there's not necessarily an expectation of them to perform bits or anything like that. And I think, uh, I think that idea appeals to them a great deal. Just the opportunity to just sit and talk about something that they probably have an opinion on. Because chances are, if you have become a comedian, you probably started as an actor. Or you might still act and you are probably involved in film in some way. And so you find a lot of crossover. You find that comedians do have strong opinions about film because for no, if for no other reason, a lot of comedians need to stay topical. And topical means politics and movies and television. And so they see a lot of movies and they, ha and they have opinions. And, and so, um, so I think for, for them it's actually refreshing that they're not being asked to talk primarily about themselves and their own careers which if they're ever on a show chances are that's what the topic is and so um so i think they i think they enjoy talking about something that isn't their primary career or themselves it's uh, a, but something that they still have a strong opinion on that's cool i know um one comedian uh Patton oswald mm -hmm. and he's been in a bunch of things but he is such a he loves film so much and he talks about it a lot in his routines and talks about his love of film. Very much so. He uh, he's a guy that we've been wanting to get for a long time, except that he's just because he actually is starting to really explode. Uh, he's starred in movies, he's starred in television, and so uh, he's very busy. Um, there are some some higher profile comedians in the LA stand up scene uh, that we were able to get, and uh, it astounds me that we were able to get them, like the the Sklar brothers and Jimmy Pardo and a few others. Um, and so, but yeah, people like uh, like Patton Oswalt or Doug Benson who uh, oh, yeah. have really started to take off. Benson even has his own movie podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would love to have Patton Oswalt on. Um, it is, we know a lot of the people that he knows. And so it is conceivable that someday our show will get big enough that he will have heard of it and that we can, and that he might be interested. Yeah. But again, he's also just incredibly busy. But uh, but yeah, he there's a there's a theater here in uh, Los Angeles in which uh, Patton Oswalt and several other comedians will uh, host an evening of of like their favorite movies and and so yeah he's a he's a, a big a big movie nerd and it turns out that a lot of the comics that we had on and we didn't know that they were big nerds it turns out that they you know they just leap at the chance to talk about this stuff. Because they, it's like a passion of theirs, and that I, I had no idea about. Great. Uh, one more question, then we'll get on to 1989, uh, Batman 1989. Okay. So you were at Comic Con recently. Was there anything yeah. that jumped out as being really cool, and anything that jumped out as being what the hell are they doing, showing this off at such a big uh, show? Um. Well, so here's my my experience with Comic Con, and uh, the next episode of Battleship Pretension will involve uh, an in depth discussion of. Uh, my experience and David's experience at at, at uh, Comic Con, and so 
Um, so I won't go into too much detail now, but um, I will say that I was very concerned about whether or not I was going to enjoy it. I don't usually like huge crowds like that. Um, and the first day when we were just trying to find parking, like I was just circling around looking for a place to park. I would, I would pay any fee. I did not care. And I was just, I was so furious and I was like, I am never coming back. This is the worst experience ever. I hate it. Uh, and then I finally did park and I was, you know, hurrying to meet my wife cause she's a photographer and she was actually uh, shooting one of the panels, and so I had to drop her off and par- find parking by myself, which is probably it probably isn't very that's not a good idea because my wife tends to uh, be something of an emotional anchor for me, and without her, I just become an absolute uh, wreck, especially under high stress. Anyway, um, so I was rushing to meet her, and I was angry and uh, panicked and all that, uh, and then I happened to as I was walking into the conference, I happened to pass a guy dressed as Manos from the terrible film Manos, The Hands of Fate. Uh, and, then I, and then next to him was a guy dressed as Torgo from the same film. And, uh, these guys, and, and somebody was having their picture taken with them. Uh, and these people were not official representatives of the conference. They were just people who, they, you know, just like me, they were just uh, attendees. And somebody wanted their picture taken. And I thought, you know what? Actually, I think I'm in the right place. And just, and from then on, I really felt, uh, as David is always quick to talk about, uh, a real sense of camaraderie with the with the people there. Um, just the realization that a lot of people that go to comic, there is an expectation, uh, and uh, and kind of a stereotype about the people that go to Comic Con that they're just they're all like comic book guy from The Simpsons. They're big and fat, can't get women. Uh, that it's like 95% men and 5% unattractive women. Uh, and in fact, uh, that, in my experience, that was not the case at all. There was a lot of women there, and there were a lot of people that I would venture to say, especially in Los Angeles, are viewed as kind of, uh, kind of hip and cool and all the other things that I am not. And, it's, and it just really, I don't know, there, there is just a sense of, people that are that might be slightly con- considered slightly nerdy and and maybe even kind of social misfits all of a sudden they find a place where they do belong and where there is uh acceptance and uh excitement about the things that that uh that these people enjoy whether it be comic books or a certain television show or various types of movies whatever um so uh oddly enough my favorite part of Comic-Con was not necessarily or the thing that struck me about Comic-Con was not necessarily uh, any specific panel that I went to or, or anything like that. It was really just a function of the fact of Comic-Con, the spirit and the uh, tone of Comic-Con, which I realize sounds very abstract, but uh, if you go and you are able to not be overwhelmed uh, by it, as I was at first, uh, you actually will come to really appreciate what it what it stands for. And again, I know that that's very lofty and very abstract, but once you go there, you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've been planning to go. I've lived in uh, Portland, Oregon for the past five years, and that's still quite away from L.A., but closer yeah. than uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived before. Well, so. you know, it's weird. Like, I, I went to the New York Comic Con, mm-hmm. and it didn't seem as cool as San Diego looks. It yeah, looks San- like so bigger. San Diego's the big one, and I'm not really sure why. I know that there's various uh, comic book conventions that have that have gotten bigger over the over the years, but I know that San Diego is the big one. It's the it's the one that the studios uh, exhibit new movies. It, it's the one that they 
that uh, even smaller companies uh, will will present like straight to DVD movies, whatever. It's the place where where everyone goes. And and again, uh, like uh, I think there's one called Wizard World. Um, then there's like Dragon Con, and and there's yep. various others. And uh, and they're all getting bigger, but this is the one that that they all seem to aspire to. Oh, cool! Can't wait to. Uh get a chance to check out comic-con when i go myself again you can check out battleship pretension the show that tyler is a co-host of at battleship pretension.com or you can follow it on twitter at twitter.com slash the pretension yes which and that is my uh that's my co-host that does the the twitter which is fine he's much cleverer than i am with the uh 140 characters <laughs> so uh so i highly recommend it and if you want to check played 140 characters nice <laughs> Yeah, with Comic-Con, the thing that jumped out to me, uh, just from the online coverage, is the pictures from the Kenneth Branagh film Thor that's going to come mm-hmm. out next year. It's, it, looks, it looks like a camp disaster, and I really enjoyed Kenneth Branagh's uh, movie Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And I hope you have a lot of histrionics and screaming in the <laughs> film. So. Well, it's classic Jack Kirby. It has to have all those things if it's going to be true to the source well, material. armor! Oh, God, just... Uh. It, I wish, you know, I think it's gonna be worse than worse than Pathfinder, but I really want to see a good, I want to see a good Viking movie with some space <laughs> thrown in, and I don't think that's what this is gonna be. I think, oh god, I just think it's got a really bad cast. I think it looks. I actually think it looks uh, pretty good. And uh, now I didn't go to the panel, but David did, and he told me about it, and he said that he actually had no interest in the movie whatsoever uh, until he went to the panel, and then all of a sudden. He saw, like, he saw uh, some clips of it, and he said that the key is that Kenneth Branagh seems to understand, as you said, it's kind of campy, that he seems to understand that this whole thing is a little silly, you know? It's, <laughs> sure. And so he, without turning it into, you know, the, the Adam West Batman series or anything, um, he, he seems committed to not taking it too seriously. Which seems to be the the hallmark for for the mar the the latest Marvel films, Iron Man, uh, Incredible Hulk, and I, I I imagine probably Captain America and Thor is that they it, it's all very important. What the characters are going through is important, but it certainly is not the the Christopher Nolan Batman films where everything is just so very serious. Um, see, that's what I want to see in a Captain America film. I want to see I want to see Saving Private Ryan for the first thirty minutes of the movie. I would be fine. I would. I would really. I think of of all of them, that's the one that probably should take itself kind of seriously. Yeah. But from what I hear, I heard a rumor that uh, Marvel has said that their the 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 film version of Captain America is is actually not going to be like the flag waving Captain America of the comic books. And part of me is like, uh, I feel like that's a mistake. That's the nature of the character. Captain America. Exactly. I'm the, I'm the most worried about the Avengers film. Anytime you have that many characters in a team, uh, and the X-Men movies did it pretty well, especially for X-Men 1 and 2. It's a difficult balance to keep that many heroes, and then they tend to overstuff heroes and villains in one film. Yeah. Okay, seriously though, Matt, Matt, really, the first movie is really a Wolverine movie. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, He's it's, a star of that trilogy, yeah. But, I mean, like, it's... I, I, don't get me wrong, I like the first, and, and especially the second X-Men film, but... Um, at the same time, like a character, yeah, Roger Ebert was always quick to point out that uh, because he doesn't have the, the the history with the comic book characters and doesn't know Wolverine to be the rich character that he is, uh, so Ebert was only looking at at a pers- at the character's powers, and he said, "How is it that this runty little guy with claws? How is it he gets way more screen time than the woman who can control weather?" 
<laughs> you know, and so, uh, which is kind of a, a good point. In the comic books, of course, they could juggle that kind of thing because you could have a Wolverine issue, a Storm issue, a Cyclops issue, whatever. Whereas in a movie, you kind of have to pick who you're going to go, who's going to be the, the leader. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it, was, it was always Wolverine. Not really the leader in the sense of the team, but the leader in the sense of the film. The lead, I guess, is the, the, is the way to play. Exactly. Well, actually, I, I, know, I know how Wolverine got more screen time than Storm in that first movie. Storm hadn't won her Oscar yet. There you go. I thought it was because uh, Wolverine blew Brian Singer. But... Oh, wow. Wow. No, Okay, here I'm gonna I'm gonna alienate some listeners. No, it's because Marvel fans blow Wolverine. Very true. Wolverine is a very strong character, and there's a lot going on there. I don't appreciate you getting all all uh, mean about it. Well, you know who's not mean. I'm at not all? actually not actually offended. That's it's fine. <laughs> you know who's not mean at all is uh, he's not an X Man, but there is a Batman. So with that force segue aside, we're gonna cover. <laughs> oh wait, that's how we're getting into this. Holy yeah. segue, Uncle Milkshake. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. You know what? I think I've got to leave. I'm sorry. After that, I just, I can't. Okay. Thanks very I much, can't. Tyler, from Battleship Pretension. Battleship it's, it's no problem. And, uh, oh, my gosh. You know what? It's fine. Let's let's stick with it. Ooh. Let's talk about 1989. And, uh, <laughs> 1989, Batman, directed by Tim Burton, produced by Peter Goober, who used to be a hairstylist. Or, no, is that John Peters? Damn it. Okay. Screenplay, <laughs> screenplay by Sam Hamm. We're in Scarin, based on a story by Sam Hamm, based on the comic by Bob Kane, although the original Batman comic was written by Bill Finger. Stars such stars as Jack Palance, Robert Wall, Robert Wall, and Porkins from Star Wars, with a score by Danny Elfman. <laughs> this is Batman 1989. So, Tyler, I have to ask you, where were you when you first saw this Batman movie from 1989? I was uh, on vacation with my family in San Diego. And I went and saw it in the theater, and uh, absolutely loved it. So, yeah, I, I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm old enough that I saw the first Batman in the theater. It's weird. I can't remember. I know I was of age to have gone and seen this. I don't remember if I saw him in the theaters or not. I saw Batman uh, Returns. I even got the Frisbee. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> was, it, was it a Frisbee of Catwoman's uh, bustier? No, it's a Frisbee that just says Batman Returns, and it's like this... It looks like gravestone, and it's still really great. It's still With the snow I, on top of the text, yeah. Yeah, basically. Right. Um, oh man, but I remember, I don't remember if I saw this in the theater. I saw. I saw. It. I saw this in. I think, if I recall correctly, nineteen ninety. What What it was is uh the, the school, um for for a number of reasons, the school year that year at the school I was going to ran into the summer because we had had some terrible blizzards earlier that year and a lot of school days got canceled. And one of those summer days, this the school had decided to do a field day. Uh, but wouldn't you know it, that day it rained. So the whole school stuck inside on what's supposed to be a field day. And so we all gather, all the all the kids gather in the cafeteria and they, and they, they play movies and this Batman film was one of the movies, and the whole school, like from six-year-olds to I don't know how old they were, just all, all the kids in school watching Batman. And I remember really enjoying this film when I first saw it. And that's it's stuff. That's after I sure learned what the word enema meant. <laughs> oh no, I was already well aware of that. His father's a doctor, Thrasher. Um, just brain what were, what were your, what were some of your uh, classmates' reactions to the movie then? 
Well, mo- just about, well, you know, really it was the standard Batman reaction where you're just watching Batman and everyone goes, awesome, Batman. I saw this movie on uh, videotape. Uh, my dad was in the military and I lived in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina for two years. And we rented this from the little military video store. And I remember being very excited by the music in the opening credits. I believe I fell asleep through a lot of the movie. But the part with uh, Bruce Wayne's, uh, as a little kid, his parents getting shot, I thought was scary. thought the Joker, that iconography was wonderful. And I read the comic a bit after seeing this Batman movie. And uh, I enjoyed it. But this is um, this original Batman Tim Burton film is really fascinating to revisit now. Apart from all the hype at the time, there's two Batman soundtrack albums, one with the score by Danny Elfman, one a Prince album. And uh, seeing it apart from all that hype when, I don't, I don't know, I mean, Batman was the first major superhero movie since uh, the original Superman film, as far as starting a new franchise. Yeah. As far as starting any franchise, I mean, there was, there was a tremendous drought in... Uh, in uh, comic book based films at that time but then you gotta wonder i mean why at this time i understand why they hired on who they they had but i i just i wonder what was happening in dc oh no i do know this wait wait <laughs> no uh 1989 would have been uh miller's the dark knight returns correct thrasher uh i i will double check on that uh we're nothing but it that was per- was around Yes, no, uh, it says here, um, yeah, I found it, The Dark Knight Returns was out that year, and uh, so was The Killing Joke, which were a much darker uh, take on The Dark Knight, and they wanted to, I guess, they must have brought it to the screen because it wasn't like a campy comic anymore. This was during the time when comics were becoming darker, with characters like Wolverine, The Punisher, and Batman just becoming a lot more... Um, serious right. about what's but, going on about their villains. But you know, it was also the time that Eastman and Laird created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to rebel against that encroaching grim, grim attitude that comics were acquiring. Tyler, were you familiar with the Batman comics at all before seeing the movie, or did the movie inspire you to read the comics? Uh, I was actually never much of a Batman person uh, growing up. I did prefer X-Men, uh, and uh, but I, of course I was aware of the the Adam West series, and I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it when I was you know when I was a kid, and uh, and I remember seeing this and and thinking like wow this really uh, this is very different from that from that <laughs> show, uh, and it really uh, it really did fascinate me, and I was really uh, I went from being a, an X Men guy to being a Batman guy for a little while, um, and then I and then I returned to X Men. Not that I was ever much of a comics uh, comics guy anyway. But uh, I became really fascinated by Batman, and I think actually it was it, it was the darker tone of this film. Not to imply that it's incredibly dark, especially uh, given the the Christopher Nolan films. But uh, but certainly, I mean, it was it was such it was such an interesting approach to uh, to a a comic book character because everyone was aware everyone was aware of Batman at the time, and I feel like only not necessarily diehard die fans, but only comic book comic book fans were aware of what Frank Miller was doing and, and Alan Moore and all that. Um, and so, so I think to, to have Tim Burton, you know, just inject it with all this German expressionism and all this weird darkness, it probably was kind of a, I don't know, kind of a, a jolt for people who 
were just generally aware of what Batman was and, and who the Joker was. You know, I'm sure they all thought of Cesar Romero, and then you see this really garish, uh, horrifying-looking creature uh, in a city that is itself garish and horrifying. One could venture to say gothic. And, um, Due and to so Tim Burton's it, amazing artwork, just Tim Burton's vision on this movie with his gargoyles and his skyscrapers, yeah, uh, terrifying city to live in. Absolutely, it, it won the Oscar for uh, for art direction, and and it would become the first of many times that a Tim Burton film would win that Oscar, um, because he does have. I mean, I I remember I okay so back in in college I uh, I wrote a paper on the use of German expressionism in Batman films, uh, hmm. even even uh, going back as far as the Adam West series in that oh. uh, in that the uh, the Dutch angle used to shoot the villains and. Like was a, an external uh, representation of their unbalanced minds. Now it probably didn't go far, much further <laughs> beyond that, but uh, but yeah, it it really fascinated me just how how for for several years mass a mass audience uh, would engage in hardcore German expressionism in Beetlejuice and then Batman and and especially in Batman Returns, um, which we'll talk about uh, another time. Possibly next week. Why not? Um, and so it really, uh, it really fascinates me that he managed to buy. It's like he kind of Trojan horsed it a little bit, where he took. He's like, "Oh, you're giving me Batman. Oh, now's my chance. Everyone's going to see Batman, and now I'm going to use the opportunity to slip in some old school uh, film, you know, film tricks or an old school film style that hasn't been seen in 40 or 50 years." And uh, and I just, I really. It, on that, even though I don't really like Tim Burton very much these days, I do really uh, admire his choices with the Batman series. Well, you know, it's interesting you you mentioned that you know I have Batman, everyone's going to see it. I I kind of look at it from the opposite angle. I, I kind of look at this and see a movie where the creator said, "Well, the studio doesn't care what we're doing. No one's going to see this movie. Let's do what we want." But it still creates an amazing movie. And yet you see Tim Burton in a way restrained. It's not as hog wild uh, as Batman Returns, which I really enjoy Batman Returns, which we'll talk about next episode. Uh, but you see it's a bit restrained, and it's Tim Burton just starting in the studio system with the studio film. And the way Batman, uh, this movie, looks, it didn't only inspire the other uh, Batman films of the 90s but it inspired any comic book movie uh, since then for uh, quite some time. You look at Blade, it's quite obviously inspired by mm -hmm. Batman's look and tone. And I think it probably, in many ways, inspired Dick Tracy the following year. Uh, uh, sure. not, not simply because Warren Beatty... I mean, obviously, he saw Batman, heard the score, and said, Oh, i got to get that guy. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the score of, of Dick Tracy and Batman are very similar. And Danny Elfman is, doesn't really throw out a lot of new things. But at the same time, those scores are very similar. Uh, but also just the... Ins I mean, it, it really... It obviously inspired Warren Beatty a great deal just as far as a visual look and just trying to create an entire city uh, through models and, and, you know, matte paintings and all of that. And so, um, and then, it, of course, it inspired Darkman, it inspired, it, and, and of course, uh, Batman Returns comes out, and I guess we'll talk more about this next time, um, and it inspired what, to me, is the best representation of Batman ever, which is Batman the Animated Series, and, I mean, that, that cartoon started to then set the tone for 
other superhero cartoons that would come in the next 10 years or so. But yeah, it, it really changed the way uh, superhero or comic book films in general were made. So the movie's called Batman. So let's talk about Michael Keaton as Batman. How does his chin fill out the uh, outfit? <laughs> I actually, it's really cool because I got to see the Tim Burton exhibit at the um, New York Met. Really? Uh, okay, so wh- what was that, just his concept drawings through his different films, or? Oh, wait, hold on one second, sorry. Um, no, it was it was his models, his advertisements that he had done for companies. Can you hear that ringing on your side? Yeah, but go on. Yeah. It could be the bat phone. No, it's not the bat phone. Um, God damn it. Sorry about this. One second. Um, let me start over so that we can edit this crap out. The What was I talking about? Oh, no, no, no. The, the Tim Met Burton. exhibit. I got to see the Tim Burton Met exhibit, and it was his, uh, his sketches, a bunch of his photography, which really isn't amazing, um, but his sketches and his, his models, and they had objects from the movies. They had the Michael Keaton um, mask. Uh, and they had the oh, they had the penguin crib, which I wanted to steal so badly. <laughs> um, but then it also had a student film that he did of uh, Hansel and Gretel, which was very trippy because the guy who played the father also played the evil witch and the mother. No, was it uh, a cartoon? I believe that might have been an episode of the Shelley Duvall fairy tale theater from HBO. No, 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 it wasn't a cartoon. It, oh, it was wasn't. a okay. a, a Asian style with all these weird toys that come out of the woods and a duck that basically throws up gold. Um, it's, it's, it's very twisted and strange. It just, it was, it was, uh, it was like one of his first things that he ever did. Well, I don't think it was Shelley Duvall. I hope not. No, uh, no. But it was before it, his time. Just, it had a lot of inspirational things. Like it showed you like how his art developed, showed you sketches for things he had done. They were showing all the stain boy uh, cartoons in a hallway, which is really cool. Actually, uh, uh, Jersey Jason, I do feel the need to correct you. I believe that exhibit was at MoMA. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was Met- uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Museum of Modern Art. Museum of Modern Art. Thank you, MoMA. Yes. Okay. So yes, at the MoMA, um, they had all. The- it was just. It was a really cool experience. They were also showing a bunch of his movies downstairs, which I I didn't get a ticket for. Um, I wasn't there at the right times for them. Um, but it was, it was a really cool exhibit. It was really neat to see um, a lot of the props and see how many people were stuffed in this little room. Oh, my God, so many people just there for the Tim Burton movie or for the Tim Burton exhibit. I actually, um, at, uh, at Comic-Con, they did have the, the, the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton uh, mask, and, uh, and it was kind of cool to see. Um, and, uh, and in regards to um, Keaton as Batman, I, a lot of people... Uh, it, it is frustrating that the, the new movies have come out, and now everybody kind of craps on the older ones now. Um, sure. And they're like, they're like, yeah, I thought Michael Keaton was good until I saw Christian Bale. Oh, my gosh, he makes Keaton look like crap. It's like, uh, slow down, everybody. Let's calm down just for a second. Uh, Keaton is still really great because the key, the key to playing Batman is to not... Okay, Clooney, I think, actually was a very good Bruce, Bruce Wayne. Wayne. I agree. But not... But not a good Batman, uh, and uh, I think I like that uh, Ke- I like Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne. The only part that I really don't like is when he's in Vicky Vale's apartment talking to the Joker. That's the only time that I see him break the character of Bruce Wayne in a way that I don't think is appropriate. 
Although I, but I don't think, I think it's a choice that Bruce Wayne is making. I think, I don't think it's something that's naturally flowing from him. I think it's, it's all right. I need to do something that will, that will, uh, inspire a reaction out of the Joker. Hopefully a violent reaction. See, um, I saw it as, I saw it as him going back to Beetlejuice stick. Uh, well, it is very Beetlejuicean. I will say that, but it does. It is a choice that the character is making. Not uh, it's a choice that the actor is making as the character, um, but it's not. I don't think it's it's like oh, Bruce Wayne has flown off the handle. No, he wants to seem as if he's flown off the handle. Um, but it is in retrospect, it is kind of strange given what what has been largely recognized as what Bruce Wayne is, which is he's always very calm, very collected. Um, and so for him to even even if the character himself is acting it's it is it is a strange choice for everyone to make but i think some of that might also have to do with uh the choices that they that they made with the batman mythology in the 89 batman where joker spoilers is responsible for uh for the death of of bruce wayne's parents which uh i know that 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 choice made a lot of comic book people very, very upset. And uh, perhaps rightfully so. You know, I think I'm okay with that. The tricky thing in any first movie of a franchise or any first movie of a reboot of a franchise is that you have to introduce the origin story in some fashion. And so much time is blown on the origin that when you get to the actual plot of the movie of Batman doing shit, there's not much going on. I guess I'm not <laughs> thinking about Batman in this case, but um, maybe more of X-Men or one of those. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to tie together that these characters have a past and give them more of a motivation for the Joker. I'm okay with that, but then, um, you know, like you, Tyler, I'm only really familiar with Batman from the films. I have very mm-hmm. little exposure to the comics. I've read Batman Year One with uh, that's Frank Miller, and I think that's it. Well, you know, I, I uh, as a person who's familiar with Batman in all of his film forms and in his comic book forms, uh, not only do I, I like that they made the Joker the murder of, of Bruce Wayne's parents in this film, I think it's very appropriate. Um, I, I will not, I will avoid ranting as best I can, but I really do feel that continuity-based storytelling is a terrible idea for comics, especially comics that have been running more or less consistently since the 1940s, as Batman has. And, you know, I Batman has been around so long, I do believe you can legitimately say that he is a mythological character. Batman is a figure of American mythology. And the thing is, the thing about myths, they change with every telling. Every time you tell a myth, whether it's the myth of Robin Hood, the myth of Batman, the myth of Hercules, you change it to fit the times and to fit the audience. And when I look at this movie, I just see another telling of the Batman myth. And in this particular telling, the Joker is the killer of Batman parents. But that makes the story so much tighter and and gives Batman uh, an even greater motivation for going after the Joker beyond just, well, it's a clown that kills people and I want to stop him. It gives him a real personal state. And I think that's the I think that is what some people really object to is that um, is that Batman is in it less for per I mean for very personal reasons, but the death of his parents made him aware of something much larger, which is the uh, which is crime in general and evil in general, and so he's fighting out against a concept, not against a person specifically, um, and in in making the Joker the murderer of his parents, one could make the argument that once the Joker is dead and once revenge, or one could say justice, has been meted out, 
well, hey, my parents have been avenged. Now it's time to stop. And that's that. It, I, I was rewatching Batman today, and that is something that I think that the new films have done a good job with is really making his motivation uh, something larger than merely the experience that he went through. Uh, whereas in this, it really uh, it, it's a very self-contained film, which can be fine, but uh, but it almost it does make it seem as if Batman will now stop because. Uh, justice has been served. But you know what? They didn't know if they were going to be making a sequel at the time. Right. Yep. So if they wanted to just, if they had just made this movie, it been if it had been okay successful or, or if it had done no business whatsoever, they just said, oh, well, well, we have the one contained story. We don't have to do anything afterwards. Yeah, I think the worst possible ending you could have done for Batman is have Batman take off his mask and reveal it's the Joker underneath. <laughs> Where did that come from, Uncle Milkshake? It came from absolutely nowhere. But I'm thinking, you know how they have those endings that tease a sequel? Oh, yeah. But regardless, yeah. awkward That's silence, that. crickets, crickets, <laughs> awkward silence. We've talked a lot about the character of Batman, but very little about this film from 1989. Well, I think everybody... And, and you notice, since this movie was from 1989... It really takes its pace in um, communicating the story. It is an hour until we see the Batmobile. It is about, um, I think, 30 minutes till you see Batman for a second time other than the opening sequence. So what do you think about the pacing of this film overall, watching it today? I like the way they present the investigation of who the Batman is more, I guess, following Vicki Vale than really following what's up with Bruce Wayne. Everybody wants to know who's the Bat. We have the, the Joker trying to find out who the Batman is. We have the crooked cops um, who also are owned by certain illegal uh, factions such as, um, not Thorn. Is it Thorn is the bad guy who's played by uh, Jack Palance? Oh, Grissom. Carl Grissom. Grissom, thank you. Um, you've got Grissom. You've got uh, Jack Napier, uh, the Joker character. Um yeah, everybody wants to know who is this guy who's just appearing. He only appears like every few instances out of the smoke or jumping down from something or zooming up on his bat line up to something. It does do a pretty good oh, I'm sorry, go on. I'm sorry, I just want to say there's just it doesn't seem to be as much Batman. It's very balanced in its focus. Mm. It is it is interesting because uh, I remember when this and then Batman Returns came out, everyone said like, "Well, these are these are Batman movies, but they're not they're, they're less about Batman than they are the villains or just the, the other people in Gotham City. And, uh, and I think to a certain extent, I think you're, you're, you're right in, in the first one that, that in many ways perhaps that's how he should be, is that he's a mystery to us just as much as the, the, the citizens of, of Gotham. Like, we, we aren't allowed in very much, whereas the, the newer films, I mean, we're, we are right there with, Bruce Wayne and Batman, like we are there, we are meant to sympathize with him, see th- see the world through his eyes. Whereas this, uh, it is, um, it's made with a with a certain a certain style that that of course uh, Tim Burton would would repeat in his in in all of his films, which is uh, in he he focuses so much on on the the visual style uh, that I think he also does kind of keep us at arm's length from the characters. Uh, and so, so yeah, Batman and Bruce Wayne always rema- remain something of a mystery. And I think that's where, where Michael Keaton was, was really, was some really solid casting is because, uh, he seemed to understand that. seemed to understand the certain, uh, enigma of, of Bruce Wayne and that he can't be easily summed up or easily figured out. And so, um, so in, in, in regards to the proportionality of how much 
Batman and Bruce Wayne were featured in the film, um, I think I think that actually served the story that they were telling, um, and uh, and yeah, and, and I guess also there's, you know, I mean Nicholson had top billing, and so I guess there was the expectation of oh let's let's show a lot of Nicholson, and there's the fact that he's just clearly having a whole lot of fun, and he would provide comic relief while also providing a great deal of uh, color and excitement and all these other things. So um, it really be- does. What was that? He's good at being mad. I mean, look at all the people that they wanted to play. Robin Williams was actually trying to get the job as um, as the Joker. Can you imagine a different person playing that Joker? Thrasher, what would um, Robin oh, Williams sound like as the Joker? Well, he would either just be full of freaking insane, or be like, Oh, Batman, I'm going to go to you. Oh, Batman, you're about going to swing yourself, going to hit a ball. Oh, I've got a ball for you. Yeah, we're having a ball here. Oh, we're having a really good time. Yes, fantastic, wonderful. <laughs> um, but, but to... But to be fair, I can, in all seriousness, I can imagine Robin Williams or or Jerry Lewis or any number of other uh, actors, even with a comedic bent, playing the Joker. But I imagine them each as a completely different Joker. You know, Robin Williams probably would have been as good as Jack Nicholson's Joker, but he wouldn't have been Jack Nicholson's Joker. And I'm very pleased with the Joker that Jack Nicholson and Tim Burton created in this film. You know who else they approached? James Woods. Oh, damn! What? Can you imagine James Woods as the Joker? Yes. Uh... Hollywood? Hollywood. (laughs) Do that. Do that right now. <laughs> James Woods is the Joker. Oh, my gosh. I think he might be actually too frightening is the problem. Um, it's, but I, I, I recall that uh, the person before Nicholson, uh, like the person who pretty much had the role, and I think uh, other obligations caused him to go elsewhere, was uh, uh, Tim Curry, which I think would have been a really interesting bit of casting. And as you mentioned, uh, I mean, it would have taken the character in a whole different direction, and it would have taken, I think, Tim Curry's career in a whole different direction. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, I'm, I'm very. I mean, we're on the Joker now, so I'll go ahead and say that uh, I'm very happy with Nicholson's Joker. I think he does a really wonderful job um, because, actually, if you, I recently did uh, a show called the the Benny South Street Chronicles, in which I talked about how much I don't particularly love Heath Ledger's performances the joker um and uh, yeah sorry everybody anyway um but the to me like one of the key elements of the character of the joker is that even though he is killing people and doing horrible things he himself is having a blast and that's something that i never really got from ledger's joker and of course some of that has to do with just the writing but also my personal interpretation of what that character is but with Nicholson, he's obviously ha- the the actor and the character are having a lot of fun in what they're doing, as they as they walk through the the museum tearing up the art. I mean, it's such a fun scene to, to watch. Song. What was that? To a Prince song, uh, Uncle Milkshake. Uh, how much of that Prince song do you think we could put? Uh, what's it called? It, what's his name? Party uh, man. How much of that do you think you could put I in think the pot? Party man. Uh, I, I can I can plug that in and post. But um. Awesome. Yeah, but I mean, and you can, if you look on YouTube, you can see those Prince um, music videos for some of the numbers he did for this film, <laughs> which are uh, fascinating movies in their own right. But isn't there a music video where uh, Prince's face is painted in, in two different ways? Like one half yeah. is the Joker and one half is Batman. I yeah. believe so. That's very strange. It is extremely strange, but 
you know, the Prince music in the scene where the Joker is defacing these popular works of art and uh, spray painting them and throwing paint on top of it, like a uh, Pollock painting. I think with the Prince music, it works somehow. I don't know. It's such a weird thing, but you see the size of the boombox that the Joker's <laughs> thugs are carrying around. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's when well, boomboxes were this big. Now I can have like um, every single Beatles album made a thousand times over this in the size of a chiclet. <laughs> With well, an iPod, uh, well, you know what? Now that I think about it, that boombox may be the only thing that dates this film. One that newspaper reporters actually count for anything, but well, uh, but Ooh. but you still get that in 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 uh, in superhero films. I mean, look how much time the Spider-Man's film films stay with the Daily Planet. Uh, not the Daily Planet. That's the wrong continuity. The uh, Daily Bugle. <laughs> but that that art scene, uh, I I uh, like I adore. And despise that slight scene. Like, at, like, like I love. Like, as as an artist, I hate seeing art defaced. But at the same time, the Joker just has this such a gleeful menace as he splatters paint and messes up paintings and statues and everything. I just love it because there there is there is that impulse you have as an artist where sometimes you do want to destroy as you create and 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 take another person's work to use that as the foundation to create uh, what you believe is a superior work. And I love that. I love that whole scene playing out. And then of course I love it afterwards when uh, a little later on, when, you know, you run into the the Joker's mall and just, you you told me you'd let me watch you improve the paintings. Like, I love that he clearly explained to her beforehand. He wanted to go into a museum and quote unquote, improve painting. The interpretation of, of the Joker as like an artist, the way he describes himself, is really is really interesting, and it really does seem to be uh, true to the comic book, uh, while also incorporating some of the darkness that uh, that the characters were starting to uh, to acquire, uh, you know, within a few years of the film being released. Um, and uh, and I that's the thing, as I said before, uh, in regards to Michael Keaton. With Nicholson, when when Heath Ledger's Joker came out, everyone hailed it as like the most amazing thing ever, um, and they and in doing so, they kind of they kind of crapped on on Nicholson's Joker and said, "Oh, he's over the top." And I remember thinking, and even today, I thought like, "Well, yeah, he's the Joker. He's over the top, but also he's over the top in in what to me seems to me is a completely organic way. It does seem to flow out of the actor himself. He's not." forcing anything and as such you get a uh, performance that to me is very satisfying um the scene in the art museum I, I i love this moment and i laugh every time i see it and i'm usually the only one not to imply other people don't get the joke i think there might just be something wrong with me anyway uh when he gasses everybody in the in the museum and everyone dies and then the door opens and the expression on his face now of course he's smiling because that his face is twisted into that but what Nicholson is doing with his eyes and eyebrows and the way he's moving his head and just looking around before he starts saying anything, it's just the door opens and reveals him as he surveys the chaos that he's, the, the horrible thing that he's just done, and he just surveys it with such happiness and satisfaction, and then he goes into what he's going to say. I love that moment. It's just a nice actory moment, uh, and I don't know. I love Nicholson in, in, the, in the part. He really... He really throws himself into it uh, in a way that he doesn't often do. Sometimes he he always lets us know that uh, that hey everybody, it's it's just me, Jack. Calm down, we're fine. But some but sometimes 
uh, like in this, he will just throw himself completely into the part and commit completely, and uh, and it can be a very satisfying experience. And I and I found it to be that in in this film. Well, Tyler, you know, I was reminded of the Joker when I saw Nicholson's performance in parts of Scorsese's uh, The Departed. Oh yeah, from a few years ago. This is the part with him with the uh, the dildo on the movie theater or the, the <laughs> snorting the cocaine off the hookers or whatever. Yeah, it was just such gleeful abandon. It seemed like Nicholson was alive for the first time in fifteen years. Yeah, but, and the scene where he comes in from the back, just covered in blood, and never calls attention to it. That's that's a very <laughs> that's a very Joker like kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, and like I'm not bashing Nicholson. I think he's he's a treasure, a wonderful actor, and I think the Departed might very well be the final role he's remembered for because mm. no one gives a shit about the bucket list. <laughs> oh, that's not true. My mom loves that movie. Um, you know, if you want to see, yeah, Morgan Freeman talk about cat poop flavored coffee, uh, you might enjoy the bucket list. Oh my. <laughs> but here in the sequel cast, we're talking about Batman 1989. Uh, as you know, they have the classic makeup of the Joker in this film uh, from the comics and it looks great on Nicholson. I find Actually, it. I find really it... Cool. The guy who did the prosthetic makeup, um, uh, Nick Dudman, he also does all the Harry Potter films, and he was also responsible for the Legend. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and the great Tim Curry Devil uh, Darkness that, role. The darkness, right? Yes. But in Batman, seeing Joker when he has the flesh-colored paint over his Joker makeup and he has the fake smile, I think is far more disturbing. <laughs> I, I love that. I love how freakish he looks when he tries to, like, s somehow the Joker covering up his face is more grotesque than just that terrifying Joker face. And it also, you know, a few years later, the, the Simpsons would do that joke where Crust the Clown points to his face, this ain't makeup! And that's what he got going on with the Joker. One of the favorite things that I love in the movie when I was a kid that scared me, when the Joker gets water splashed in his face... It, it destroys the makeup that he has on top. So it looks like it looks like the makeup, the skin is melting off and the white is coming through. And then it's such a horrifying vision. That looks <laughs> scariest. He looks like one of the paintings he defaced. Oh, nice. Yes. Uh, and I think it also speaks to the absolute insanity of the character that he literally thinks that if he puts this makeup on, no one will notice anything. <laughs> Everything's fine. <laughs> I think it's a vanity thing. Again, the the chemicals in the vat that he's throw that he falls into, and all that damage or whatever that the plastic surgeon was able to, I guess, fix this way, all that stuff is like it's uh, it's it's done stuff to his face. It's it's bleached him. It's turned his hair green. It's done such awful damage to his skin that he is basically trying to hide, and he can't hide the smile. He'll never be able to hide that. I mean. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the way even the Joker's face looks, um, talking about German expressionism. You watch the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and the extreme expressions, the, the grins and stuff of some of the characters in that uh, German film. What's that film called, um, Mr. Sardonic? Dr. Dr. Sardonicus. Yeah, about, about the man with the terrifying permanent smile. I was actually about to bring that up. I can see a bit of Dr. Sardonicus in the makeup for Nicholson's Joker, and, and I'm sure Tim Burton was familiar with that film, and I could imagine him taking some inspiration from that into this movie. And I think there's also a film that I, I actually own, I got it for Christmas, but have not yet watched, uh, called The Man Who Laughs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I'm trying to think, because uh, uh, I haven't seen it. There's The Man Who Laughs, which I think has Conrad Veidt in it, who played the somnambulist in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And in that, of course, he just has this horrifying grin. And then there's also the character by, played by Lon Chaney, who just has that, as you mentioned, the permanent grin. And for the life of me, I don't remember oh, the geez. name of that one. Was that? Was that yeah. I, I can't recall what that... Um, and that is it Man like... with a Thousand Faces? No? No, wait, I don't... Wait, think... are you talking about the vampire movie where he plays the vampire with that permanent smile? I don't know. I think it's something like... Uh... Ah, shoot. Now I don't remember. Now that I think about it, permanent smiles seem to pay, play a, big, a very large role in old-school German expressionism. I wonder why that is. But, oh well, <laughs> well you know, I guess... So- there's something so, I guess, frightening about, number one, a big smile, but also uh, I, it's, it's said that when animals bare their teeth, even if they're smiling, like apes and such, that's actually a sign of aggression. Hmm. No, no, it, it, it is. And there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, talk in, in like, you know, developmental neurology and in, you know, you know as, as humans diverged, from you know the the common primate ancestor, how the smile for us changed because you do smile when you you do you do there's that predatory smile that you see on salesmen that are too aggressive that you see on yeah, yeah. on guys who are on the make and mm-hmm. and 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 that it's sort of it's sort of believed that you know we still recognize the smile as a threatening gesture that can create social tension, but laughter is how we release that social tension, which is how we got the expression of laughter and parting your teeth as you as you sort of approve of someone. It's pretty interesting. Uh, Tyler, I was noticing we've been recording for an hour so far. Can you hang on for another 30 minutes, or what's your thought? Uh, sure. Like? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe closer to 15 to 20, 15. but yeah. Okay, sure. So we can can we also talk stuff. about, in this movie, how much of a... Um, I guess as a uh, not an editorial role, but as a uh, inspirational of having uh, Bob Kane right there for everything. Yeah, so Bob Kane, he wasn't the writer of Batman, but he was the artist of Batman in the old issues. He might have written some issues later on. I don't know uh, that much, but there's a, a great. Uh, they recently released. Uh, the old Batman films from the 90s as a two-disc DVD set, and then recently again on Blu-ray. And they talk, Bob Kane's widow is talking about Bob Kane at the premiere of Batman, this 1989 film, and he's crying, and he's saying, oh, these people, they love my movie, they love my work, they appreciate me. And he was involved as far in this film because it was the first major serious Batman film, not counting the Adam West one from the uh, 60s. I think you can go ahead and say it's the first major yeah, sure. serious Let's one. Because <laughs> uh, the uh, bat shark repellent was not as serious as some people think. Let's, and of course the... stuff. What was that? Let's wait on bashing Adam West, who even, <laughs> even at the time wanted to play Batman in this movie. Good lord, can you imagine how horrifying that would be? I know, I know. Adam oh, West wow. as the Joker... Think about it. <laughs> now, now that I'd pay to see. I would actually like to see that. They but could have from, cast him as like Commissioner Gordon or something like that. Sure, I mean, there's yeah. not. That I could in, say he, he makes a great mayor. But also, the cool thing is Bob Kane. He he not only did he have like a hand in helping. He even wanted Keaton, and he had uh, he approved or he approved Keaton, but wanted Jack Nicholson from the yep. start. Yep. Hmm. Also, he appears in the movie when they're everybody's like talking about this Batman kicker. 
at the newspaper, Bob Kane draws a picture to be printed of what people believe this Batman looks like. Yeah. It's so cool to see him there. And it's even marked by Kane. And isn't he referred to by name? Doesn't a wall turn to him and go, good good job, Kane? Or good job, Bob? Or something like that? Or way to go? I believe so. Um, I do want to mention, since we're running a bit lower in time, that um, in the newer Christopher Nolan Batman films, you have Michael Caine as Alfred, who was who wonderful, fantastic actor. But I also really like the actor they have in these... Uh, in this Batman film as Michael Alfred, Go. Michael Goh, who is from these old British Hammer horror pictures like uh, the Frankenstein and Dracula, some of those um, movies they did. Which and, I'm guessing Burton liked. I'm betting Burton oh, sure. liked. And he just brings such a dignity to Alfred, and it's a very subtle sense of humor, not unlike... Uh, who is the butler in Arthur with Dudley Moore? John Gilgood? Uh, that's right, yeah. Not unlike John Gilgood. Maybe not so... so Smart ass, but I think actually that that brings up something that was interesting about this film, especially compared to the uh, the newer films is um, you know if you watch if you watch Batman begins and uh, and the Dark Knight, you find that because uh, Bruce has has lost his parents, he finds father figures everywhere <laughs> you know Com- Commissioner Gordon is one of them, Alfred is one of them, uh, Lucius played by Morgan Freeman, he's one of them. Uh, and of course, in the in in the first one, you actually find uh, good father figures and bad father figures. So, like, actually, if you look at uh, if you look at every, I think pretty much every good father figure has a mirror uh, in in, and that's a bad father figure. Like, you've got Rutger Hauer for Morgan Freeman. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, in the in the eighty nine Batman, um, they see the the writers seem to not be interested in that so if you actually look at especially commissioner gordon and to a slightly lesser extent um alfred you actually find characters that are just kind of there they're certainly not three-dimensional you get a hint of of depth with alfred but not very much uh and of course michael go uh, michael go still does uh a great job at at you know hinting at depth uh, with his performance, but as far as what he's given to say, there's really not much going on, and that is something that uh, that kind of frustrated me because I've always been a big fan of the character of um, Commissioner Gordon, and in this, I mean, Pat Hingle does a fine job, but there's really not much there uh, for these characters. It really just focuses on uh, good guy, bad guy, love interest, and that's basically it. Yeah, I think, and you also have Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent. You sure do. Yeah, I love him as Harvey Dent. He's good. I, I, I really wonder what his uh, Two-Face would have been like. Oh, it, so do I. It wouldn't have been hard to be better than what Tommy Lee Jones did in Batman Forever. Are you guys going to be talking about Batman Forever? We will. Oh, yeah. It looks like our schedule, if you can come on for next week, this same time on Wednesday, we're doing Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And then we're taking a bit of a hiatus, but I'll inform you when we do the later Batman films if you want to come on for those as well. Okay, because I have... Go ahead. Oh, no, I just need to tell Thrasher. Um, we got to figure out how we're doing that. Oh, yes, yes. I'm getting we'll married talk- in a few weeks, but anyway, Tyler. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, what were you going to say? Uh, do- oh, yes, just that, uh, yes, I have very strong opinions on uh, on the Riddler, so whenever you do uh, Batman Forever, just uh, be sure to let me know. Excellent. Well, definitely let you keep you posted. But um, back to this Batman 1989. Uh, Jason, you were going to say something? Was I? I was. <laughs> 
Okay, Thrasher. Well, well why don't you talk about you? Uh, because you mentioned you mentioned like you know other characters and then the the extent that they do or do not enrich the film. Uh, I'd like to talk for a minute about the character of Vicky Vale, played by Kim Bassinger or Basinger, yeah. depending on where you're from. Uh, I she was she, she a does... playmate? No, oh. no. Uh, she was. she was married to to uh, Alec, the king of the Baldwins, at one point. But but, but um, but the thing about like Vicky Vale. I, I, Vicky Vale sort of does two does two things in this movie. One, she begins the tradition of shoehorning romantic subplots into Batman movies, and yeah. I really feel romantic subplots just don't suit Batman. I've only ever seen one Batman in love story that I ever really liked, and one of the only reasons why it worked is that Bruce Wayne was in love with somebody, but the relationship was all organized by a supervillain who was going to try to kill him and collect insurance money. And two, <laughs> Vicki Vale starts the tradition of having people who aren't Batman or Alfred getting into the Batcave, sometimes even by accident. Well, it's weird that you like talk about it. I, um, who who was the chick who was supposed to play her? Um, Sean Young from uh, Blade Runner. Who also then wanted to be Catwoman, but uh, Sean Young, eh, she was injured, and then they were going to replace Young with Michelle Pfeiffer, but at the time, Keaton and Pfeiffer were together, but I, I Sean Young also would have made a much better Silver St. Cloud, which was supposed to be the character before Vicki Vale. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, Vicki Vale was an actual Batman character, correct? Wasn't she if one she of the? Was it would have been at the very beginning. I actually have not found any references to her. Because Vicky Vale, it sounds too much like a, a Superman, uh, contact, um, just because the double V, but um. Because Superman, know. it's double L. Yes, true. Well, it's doubles. There's no real doubles. Ill, so I'll silver Saint Cloud, but not there. But I, I can imagine Sean Young being better. But I still wonder if, because of the script, she appears so dumb, and maybe because of, maybe because of Kim Basinger, she looks so dumbfounded, and kind of stupid, and just stumbling, stumbling into her stories. She doesn't. She's, actually... she's a weak. She's a weak character. You yeah. can't exactly buy that she's a successful investigative journalist. You. It, it it does not add much of anything to the film. I like that there's a woman the Joker can threaten, but the Joker's already got that that gang mall that follows him around. I think that relationship would have been better to focus on. Yeah, I, I think that he oh, pushed her out of the building, though. I, I like the fact that she dies. He's, like, bored with her, so he gets rid of her. <laughs> um, I Actually, I think she threw herself out the window after he uh, uh, squirted acid on her face. So I guess maybe in a way he's still responsible. Um, yeah, with uh, with Vicky Vale, I don't want to I don't want to bash Kim Basinger too much because she Why revealed not? herself to be a because she revealed herself to be a, a very good actress in like L.A. Confidential and the door and uh, the door and the floor is a really great, really emotional ex- uh, performance from her. Um, and then there is a movie that's terrible called uh, uh, While She Was Out. Um, <laughs> and uh, and while the movie is terrible, Kim Basinger is turning in really solid work. Anyway. Um, but of course, at this point in her career, she was still, uh, you know, kind of inexperienced, really not that wonderful, and the script isn't doing her any favors either. Um, 
But I think I actually think that uh, that having romantic interests for Batman, whether it be in this film or any other film, I think it actually does. Uh, I think it actually does help the story. Well, it can it can be a distraction from the from the action, of course, but it can help the story because it it constantly forces Batman or Bruce Wayne to make a choice, which is do I live a, do I try to live a normal life? Do I try to juggle incorporate this? What do I do? Now, of course, but I don't see, that think the f- is, that choice is presented so much better in the next movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and that's sure. that's that's something that Catwoman has always has always uh, presented uh, an interesting thing where oh, I can I can be romantically involved with somebody and not have to change my lifestyle because she does it too. Um, <laughs> so there's there's something something there, but uh, but I don't I don't know if any of the movies have really handled it that well as having an external uh, love interest like. Uh, Chase Meridian in the in the third one, um, and even uh, I guess I guess Rachel Dawes in, in the later films uh, or the the newer films. I feel like that character, yeah, the, the character itself is fairly two dimensional, but in her relationship to Batman, she kind of uh, brings out some interesting things in in his character. But uh, but yeah, in, in this, it really does just she's just kind of a perpetual damsel in distress and I'll, and uh as i was watching it today my uh my wife actually brought up something that was interesting that uh Vicky Vale is you know she's she's a a vogue photographer who actually apparently has a strong enough eye to go to you know Corto Maltese and and cover this this war and all that and yet she has no idea what Bruce Wayne looks like like she just <laughs> she she, I realize that there was no internet in this uh, in this Gotham City, but uh, sure. but There's the fact that reels. exactly she she hits the she comes to town and uh, manages to be largely ignorant of all of the the way of what all the major players look like uh, and probably the richest guy in town. She has no idea. It's like, oh, we're going to this guy's uh, party. Uh, I don't think I need to do any research beforehand. This should be fine, right? Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, again. Kim Basinger can be a really good actress, and I think she probably could have been in this, but uh, that script just is not helping her at all. Yeah, Vicky Vale is certainly a character to keep the plot moving along. Uh, I was watching this movie; my fiance was in the room, and uh, I asked her, "Well, I, I do the sequel cast every week or so, doing an episode. Do you want to watch one of these movies I do for my uh, podcast?" And she said, "I don't want to see Batman because I hate Michael Keaton's face. He makes me uncomfortable." Hmm. uncomfortable really yeah well, and i and I, I think of michael keaton i think of jeff goldblum as similar twitchy uh character actors from the 80s eyes and eyebrows yeah rising eyebrows but this uh, whole this whole movie was eyebrows yeah nothing. you got that. nicholson versus keaton i mean that in itself <laughs> right you know you don't have to have any makeup for that and it's already kind of creepy should have been called batman eyebrows begin <laughs> well, you know, even even the Batman's mask has freaky eyebrows. All right, uh, Tyler from Battleship Pretension, I know you got to get going, but uh, final thoughts on Batman. We'll cut you in at the end of the show. Are you able to come in next Wednesday the same time for Batman Returns? I think so. I will I will try to make it a priority. Okay, if not, we can reschedule. Um, okay. So, all right, uh, last thoughts on Batman, Tyler? Uh, I think it's... Uh, I think for what it is, it's really great. It it is not trying to approximate reality like the Nolan films are. It's a heightened version of reality, and as such, the 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 art direction, the character design, and the way the characters are played uh, all feed into that, and really just do a, a solid job of just creating 
this this other world, which is of course the world of comic books. Um, and so a lot of people look at what Nolan has done, which is quite an achievement, uh, and they they kind of they they crap on on the earlier Burton films. Um, but you need to realize that. The, these films aren't trying to take place in our reality. They're not trying to ask any deep societal questions. They're just meant to have fun and maybe splatter some psychosis on the screen at the same time. Uh, and it's just uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy it, and I highly recommend it. It's, uh, very well put. Tyler is a co-host of Battleship Pretension. Check it out, battleshippretension.com, twitter.com, slash the pre- the pretension. And uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, I don't suppose we could also... I have two podcasts. Could I plug my other one as well? Sure, it's a TV one, right? No, that's David's. David's oh, is, I'm sorry. Uh, mine is another movie one. Okay, <laughs> um, go on. Which, it's, it's called More Than One Lesson. You can find it at morethanonelesson.com. And it's basically uh, film criticism from an overtly Christian point of view. Uh, and that one is a little more up-to-date. I, I recently did an episode on uh, Toy Story 3. Um, uh, but any, any movie from, like, the last three years or so, uh, I discuss it artistically and then, of course, thematically. And so uh, that's at morethanonelesson.com. You can also find it in iTunes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's not necessarily every week. In fact, it's looking like it's, like, every three weeks or so. Yeah, but, sure. uh, but yeah, the, that's, that's my other one. Great. You can listen to Tyler as a co-host on Battleship Retention or check out his podcast that he just mentioned the title of that I can't remember because I have Another had... Lesson. Another more than lesson. one lesson. More than one lesson at a more than one lesson dot com. Tyler, thank you so much for being on the sequel cast. I know there's a lot of movie podcasts out there. I've enjoyed hearing you on Battleship Pretension and as a guest on the Slash Filmcast. But thanks for taking some time out of your evening to come on to this one. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sure. We'll stay in touch on the future uh, Batman shows we do. All right? Absolutely. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. Bye. I'm going to check that out. That actually sounds like a little cool. Yes. That seems like a really cool viewpoint. I think so. I mean, you don't. There's so many podcasts about we're going to watch the movies that come out in the theater each week, and while that's great, um, it can kind of get old. So that's why there's no hook, right? There's no hook, and that's why you know Battleship Pretension. It has a lot of stand-up comedians from the LA area that come on, as well as the great host banter on that show. And we at the sequel cast we cover old-school franchises, one movie at a time, whether we like it or not. Whether we like it or not. So, um, anyway, Tyler, great guest. Wonderful. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about Batman without talking about the actual film. Or, although we've mentioned more than I thought we have. Some about the comic book character, what we were at the time watching the film. Watching it now, I think the pacing is very... I enjoy the first hour. I don't like the second hour as much. You have a lot of scenes of the Joker being the Joker just I because, hate it. hey, it's Jack Nicholson. And do you want to hear a story about the ending of the film? Sure. So I was I didn't listen to all the commentary because Tim Burton gives shitty audio commentaries, but there's a, a great documentary on the two disc DVD or Blu-ray that's out, and on there uh, they mentioned so at the time they were filming Batman, it came out in '89. They were probably they must have been filming '88 in uh, London. Phantom of the Opera was just starting to come out as a London musical. The uh, the directors and producers and stars of Batman went to see Phantom of the Opera, and uh, loved it. It was a, you know, it's a very big uh, musical, and they made a sequel to it recently that I'm not sure if it made it to Broadway or not, called, like, Love Never Dies. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about, Jason? Yeah, it did actually come to Broadway. It Has it closed already? <laughs> it closed 
Wow. Yeah, it closed well, maybe about the time. long after. I mean, everybody loves Phantom, but they tried to make a sequel, and again, wasn't very successful. Hey, let's go see them both and then review them. <laughs> Possibly. That could be uh, something very special indeed. But anyway, they saw that, and um, it doesn't matter. One of the producers of Batman saw Phantom of the Opera with the cast and the directors and stuff and said, wow, you know what we need? We need a conclusion with Batman facing the Joker in a bell tower on top, you know, in a, was, on top uh, of the John tower. Peters. John Peters John decided Peter. okay, he right. told first the designer to create a model of the cathedral. And this came out of nowhere. Meanwhile, you had a screenplay that had a climax with Joker getting on a helicopter and a timed explosion going off and a lot of suspense. Mickey Vale was supposed to die. Exactly, yeah. Let's talk about making a darker movie even darker. Especially for the time, that would have been uh, extremely shocking for a, a PG-13 uh, film. Let alone a think, comic book movie. I don't think it would have gotten the PG-13 time. If, if they'd killed sure. off yeah. Vale. Or if more people had died during the po- poison gas attack. Which really is one of the ho- most horrible way to die is imaginable. I mean, a yeah, permanent against, grim plastered on your face. It's against the Geneva Convention to release gas from... <laughs> no, no, to release gas from party balloons or from uh, parade balloons. That's why the ending kind of takes place out of nowhere in a bell tower. While they were filming that scene, Jack Nicholson turned to Tim Burton and said, Why am I climbing up the stairs into this set? Why was this happening? And Tim Burton's like, Don't worry about it. Because we'll he was, fix it in Well, he had such pressure from the studio. I mean, as much as Beetlejuice was a studio film, that was more uh, Tim Burton-y than uh, this original, this Batman 1989 film was. Any big problems with the ending? It was kind of done on the set. I, I enjoy the image of the Joker being knocked off the end of the uh, the bell tower. That's kind of cool. Like he's laughing at that. That is a really cool scene. Mm-hmm. But it does seem if they cut out the cathedral and still had that scene, that would have been cool. Put the gargoyle on top of a building because they're all over. If you got impaled on a gargoyle, that would be really cool. Oh, that would have been awesome. Just to see like him, like just to see Jack Nicholson splayed out across the wings or the back of some grotesque, that would have been amazing. What if yeah. the head of the gargoyle went through Jack Nicholson's chest and he's smiling in a way that the gargoyle is smiling? That would be appropriate imagery, but I would prefer a more ironic death where the Joker falls into a into a truck full of wind-up chattering teeth, and they bite him to death. He's oh. bitten to death by a thousand little smiles. That sounds like a Goosebump books I read. <laughs> you read Goosebumps. I did, yeah. Uh, Oral Stein, he can... Uh, Come on, Will. Uh, Are you serious? To be fair... To be fair, I read one and a half. Thank you. As did I. Night of the... Oh, no, no, no. It was... I, I read the one about the... The, the, the camera. Oh. I read the one about the camera. Say cheese and die. Yes, thank you. Say cheese and die. <laughs> and only a few pages into uh, Night of the Dummy. I found that to be just completely awful as a story. Just, <laughs> oh, God. Terrible prose. I think I read the first dozen books. Earl Stein pumped out each of those books in a week apiece. I don't doubt it. He's a very smart businessman. but um, It's like Roger Corman. Just like uh, Batman, sure. 
Yeah, we're talking about Batman or something. Can we talk a little bit, like, this movie definitely has a comic book feel. Everything is much more silly. I mean, the buzz, uh, the the uh, joy buzzer that has a super reality. It does, as you mentioned, Jason. You know, the shot composition is excellent, and while it does, it is campy. It's not just Joker popping balloons and sitting on whoopee cushions. He shoots people point blank. There's not blood. You don't see. Uh, it's not as graphic in a PG-13 movie as, say, The Dark Knight is, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, but it, it still has moments of darkness. Even though by today's standards, those seem pretty tame, cartoony, if you will. But it just, I don't know. It, it seems, when I watch it now, it seems so silly since I've seen a very reality-based version of what the possibility is with a character. That is a tricky thing to go back to after seeing Heath Ledger. I mean, you know, when I saw Heath Ledger, and it's a wonderful portrayal of the Joker or as Heath Ledger as the Joker, it made me think, well, what character could have continued that portrayal if in uh, the third uh, Christopher Nolan Batman movie they do the Joker again, which I don't think they will. Um, Benicio Del Toro, I think, could have been an interesting Joker. No, I hate his voice. I I hate him in everything but... <laughs> no, no, okay. I hate Benicio Del Toro okay. in everything but Snatch. His voice annoys the crap out of me. The mumbling, the method acting thing? Yeah, his mumbling and his terrible speech. The way he talks in The Wolfman, I'll kill all of you! It's I, like, what the fuck? I have the Blu-ray rented sitting on my uh, TV at home. I need to check it out. I'm very curious to see how there, The Wolfman I, is. I know there are people who, are, who look kind of like him who would be much better. The guy who plays Brett from Flight of the Concords looks... <laughs> Benicio Del Toro and can act <laughs> ten times better than him because you can understand what he's saying. That's, he does rely on the mumbling, the mumble core a bit too much, but let's go back to Batman. We should wrap this show up. Um, Thrasher, anything else that sticks out to you about Batman? We've talked about the film, the character, the comics, the legacy in this episode so far. Any, when you think of Tim Burton's original Batman film from 1989, what is the one thing that jumps out? Joy. There is a lot of joy in the performances. As dark as it is, there's joy in the direction. You can tell that Burton and the designers are just in love and just thrilled to be packing so much detail into every frame. It's like a lot, like a lot of the best films we've talked about. Everyone in this film seemed to have been having the time of their life. That's not true. Burton said the movie itself was complete torture for him. I, I said know- looks like, not was. Yeah, no, it, it was because of studio interference, and he had a lot of problems with uh, some of the producers who he'd later have as producers on Sleepy Hollow, which I think is a wonderful late-period Burton film, or I, a current, more recent Burton film, without a... Um, it doesn't have a sequel, sadly, so we can't talk about it. But uh, Tim Burton is a really fascinating director, and uh, is Batman the only uh, films he did a, a sequel to? I believe so, yes. I think that's right. So um, He's doing a remake of Frankenweenie, but that's as far as he's come. <laughs> it's a backhanded compliment if I heard one. Um, I'll backhand your compliment. You already no, have. I, okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm trying to remember a sequel that he might have. I'm pretty sure that's it. He is, he is doing like some movie based off a, uh, a board game or something called Monster, Monster Ocalypse. 
That's going to be monster apocalypse. And I really liked Mars Attacks, so I, it, it sounds like it'd be along those lines. I um, loved Mars Attacks. Oh my god, I don't, I, I don't want to see it. Can't be monster apocalypse. I guess it could work. I guess. I, I guess it, it basically it would be like Tim Burton doing a Godzilla movie. But I'd like to see Tim Burton do a Godzilla movie. Or, or rather, the Tim Burton from 10 years ago doing the Godzilla movie. And he has a Godzilla reference in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, his first theatrical debut. He is um, a Godzilla fan. Absolutely. Uh, J- Jersey Jason, yes. when you think of Batman, the 1989 <sighs> film, what is the one thing that jumps out? The phrase or actor or whatever? Man. Um, I'd rather talk about the second one. <laughs> I agree. Well, if if Bat if Tim Burton's Batman were a tree, what kind of tree would it be? Oh my god! No, no, it would be. Oh man, it would have to be something like a maple losing most of its leaves and very tapped. And in the second one, that maple would be covered in snow. <laughs> very well put, Thrasher. Um, so I, Uncle Milkshake, what I think of the original Batman. First half is a wonderful film, has some very iconic imagery. The first scenes in the Batmobile, driving to the Batcave, the, the set design, the cinematography, all this stuff is great. But as is common in Burton films, the art direction can get away in the way of the plot. And I don't think that's an unfair comment. No, no, I, I, but yeah, once you said that, it kind of dawned on me, yeah, that's, com- that's completely valid. And so I, I think the script is okay. Uh, the Joker stuff is good. If it would have been, you know, Joker the movie instead of Batman the movie, that could have been uh, really something pretty special. But it, it's launched the first major superhero franchise since Superman. It's worth checking out. It doesn't hold up as well as it might have at the time, but um, yeah, certainly worth a rental or a, a purchase if you can find it uh, for uh, inexpensive price. So next episode we're going to be covering. Batman Returns. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to get a Tyler from Battleship Retention on again. He stressed to me in emails time and time again, Batman Returns is possibly his favorite film of the Batman franchise. We're With this Batman 1989 episode, we're starting off a series of four or five episodes covering the uh, Batman movies from the late 80s uh, to the n- late 90s. And we'll be wrapping that up with an episode on the Batman uh, animated series and uh, the comics and, and live-action show and so forth. Uncle Milkshake, you know what's also on right now? What? Catwoman. I've never seen Catwoman. I've always wanted to see it. That, that's another one that maybe would get a bonus episode, uh, much like Tim Burton's uh, Planet of the Apes. We could lump the, that in the bonus one, yeah. It's on Oxygen right now. Um, they've got a back-to-back, uh, so if you want to catch it at 11 o'clock, I don't know what it is on your side. But uh, Catwoman's playing on Oxygen, which is Channel 69. Great Regardless of where or when you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> Catwoman is on on Oxygen, which is on Channel 67. Great. So uh, thanks again for doing the show, guys. This was I thought this Batman episode was great. No, good uh, guest. Well, very oh, good oh, guest. Oh, thank you. I've, um, you know, I, I've enjoyed Battleship Pretension. You can check, check out Battleship Pretension at battleshipretension.com. Tyler is a co-host of that show. He also co-hosts a show... About more the, than one lesson. I gotta check that out. What is it called? More than more than one, one lesson. More than one lesson. A a, a Christian themed uh, movie show. They can look at movies from a Christian perspective, and um, 
Again, battleshipretention.com. You are listening to the Sequel Cast. Check out the website, sequelcast.com. Twitter.com slash sequelcast. Send us an email, sequelcast at gmail.com. Tell us how much you liked or hated the show. This is Uncle Milkshake. Thrasher. And Jersey Jason. Saying, tell your friends, I'm Sequelcast. I'm Batman.